gather round people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone Or the times they are changing Hello and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill Episode number 142 when we go back, back to, to the, the past. past And read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing you can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.com or subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and by hanging out in the Speed Force for a decade or two. Is that where we've been? That's where we've been all the time, <laughs> observing everything from the Speed Force, everybody. I know it's been a little bit while, but uh, we've come back with, I think, what's going to be a very uh, interesting comic uh, that is DC Universe Rebirth number one, a June 2016 cover date, written by Jeff Johns, art by a lot of people, but we're concentrating on Gary Frank, cover by Gary Frank and Brad Anderson. Well, again, that would be the main cover, at least. It is a post-2013 comic, so there are a lot of covers Uh Lettered by Nick J. Napolitano, edited by Andrew Marino and Eddie Berganza. Cover price is two ninety nine, which was is quite a deal for an eighty page comic, but uh, they really seem to stand behind this thing. Uh, so we're going to start with usually with our usual biographies, starting with Def Johns, born January twenty fifth, nineteen seventy three, in Detroit, Michigan. Johns first discovered comics from an old box he and his brother found in their grandmother's attic. This included copies of The Flash, Superman, Green Lantern, and Batman from the 1960s and 70s. Johns eventually patronized a comic shop in Traverse City, recalling that the first few new comics he bought were Crisis on Infinite Earths number 3 or 4, June or July 1985, and The Flash number 348 or 349, that was August or September 1985. Incidentally, if it was The Flash number 348, he got the conclusion to a trial that lasted three or more years. Jeff Johns was a fairly prolific letter hack in the 1980s and 90s, uh, primarily writing to DC Comics titles. One letter Johns wrote would appear in Superboy number 26, this is during the con L run, and in it he pitched for DC Comics to make this Superboy a clone of Lex Luthor. Despite the editor replying with a bzzz, I'm sorry, Johns would go on to make it so less than a decade later in Teen Titans Volume 3, Number 1, September 2003 cover date. After graduating from Clarkston High School in 1991, Johns studied media, arts, screenwriting, film production, and film theory at Michigan State University, graduating in 1995. And then he set his sights on Los Angeles, California. In Los Angeles, Johns Cold called the office of director Richard Donner, best known for directing The Omen, 1976, and Superman in 1978. That's the Christopher Reeves classic. Johns was looking for an internship, and while he was transferred around, uh, Donner picked up the phone by accident, and this led to Johns getting that internship. He started off copying scripts, and after about two months, he was hired as a production assistant for Donner. While working on production of Donner's 1997 film Conspiracy Theory, Johns met Eddie Berganza, who invited him to the DC Comics offices. 
This led John's pitching Stars and Stripe, a series based on the second Star-Spangled Kid and her stepfather. He expected to write comics on the side until he met David Goyer and J James Robinson, who were then working on JSA. After looking at Stars and Stripe, Robinson offered John's co-writing duties on JSA in 2000. John's credits both Robinson and editor Mike Carlin with shepherding him into the comics industry. That same year, Johns became the regular writer on The Flash, ongoing series with number 164, September 2000 cover date, until 225, October 2005 cover date. He co-wrote a Beast Boy limited series with Ben Robb in 2000 and crafted a Return to Krypton story arc in Superman titles with Pascal Ferry in 2002. After writing the Avengers Volume 3 numbers 57 through 76, October 2002 to February 2004 cover dates, and Avengers Icons colon The Vision number 1, October 2002 to January 2003 cover dates for Marvel Comics, Johns wrote the relaunches of Hawkman and Teen Titans in 2005. Also that year, Johns brought Hal Jordan back to Green Lantern Corps in the Green Lantern colon Rebirth, not the one we're reading today, miniseries drawn by Ethan Van Skyver, and then picked up writing duties on Green Lantern thereafter for a long time. He had an unbroken run on Green Lantern in whatever form, as well as uh, other related titles to the Green Lantern uh, Corps from 2005 until 2013. It was during this time that he established the color spectrum of lanterns, as well as other concepts largely pilfered from Alan Moore that have become standard parts of Green Lantern mythology. And during that time, Johns was the writer of the Infinite Crisis crossover limited series, December 2005 to June 2006. Following this, Johns was one of four writers with Mark Wade, Grant Morrison, and Greg Rucka on 2006-2007 weekly series 52, and that was plotted largely by Keith Giffen. In 2006, Johns and Kurt Busiek co-wrote the Up, Up, and Away story arc in Superman and Action Comics. He then reunited with Richard Donner on the Last Sun storyline in Action Comics with Donner co-plotting. The Justice Society of America series by Johns and artist Dale Eaglesham began February 2007. Six months later, he and Jeff Katz launched the new Booster Gold series. 2009 was a big year for Jeff Johns. He wrapped up the Sinestro Corps War, a big Green Lantern crossover event, and he had a run on action comics with Gary Frank, including the Brainiac storyline where Jonathan Kent, who is Clark and Connor Kent's adoptive father, is killed. Together, they also revamped Superman's origin with the graphic novel Superman's Secret Origin, which pretty much established the same thing, that John Kent is dead. John's would team with Ethan Van Skyver again on the Flash colon Rebirth miniseries, which is, again, a different rebirth than we'll be discussing today. <laughs> uh, this one would uh, return D uh, Barry Allen to, like, the DC Universe property. He first showed up in, like, Final Crisis, but this kind of put him in his spot mm -hmm. um, and pulled Wally out. Uh, in 2010, DC Comics writer and president said of Jeff... Folding in old concepts and inventing new ones, Johns has established limitless story possibilities. On February 18, 2010, Johns was named the Chief Creative Officer of DC Entertainment, which was established to expand the DC Comics brand across other media platforms. And he said that this position would not impact his writing. And 
For a while, it didn't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a little while. Uh, Jeff Johns wrote the core books of the Brightest Day event along with Peter J. Tomasi and then immediately went into the summer-long crisis-level event called Flashpoint in 2011. That's right, and that would lead to the new 52 reboot where he would wrap up his run on Green Lantern with Volume 5, Number 20, July 2013, Cover Date, entitled The End. Penciled by many of the artists he'd worked with, like Patrick Gleason, Ethan Van Skyver, Doug Menke, and many more in the, just that one issue. And it really felt like a good coda to his uh, eight-year run or whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, he then t- he took up writing Aquaman and Shazam back up, uh, also appearing for six issues in Justice League. John served as a co-producer and creative consultant for the 2011 Green Lantern film, directed by Martin Campbell and starring Ryan Reynolds. Johns and Gary Frank collaborated on Batman Earth One, original graphic novel released in 2012, and they would release a second volume in 2015. Also in 2015, Johns also began writing Superman with John Romita Jr. and Klaus Janssen on art. This uh, kind of had mixed reviews, but uh, mm-hmm. it's uh, what brought me back to reading Superman because I thought, hey, they're actually going to do something with him here. That's so, right. And, <laughs> there uh, you go. Let's we'll, we'll see what happened there anyway. <laughs> it's true. Now, this run was seemingly cut short when Jeff Johns was promoted to president and chief creative officer of DC Entertainment in 2016. He reported directly to DC Entertainment president Diane Nelson. Johns was an executive producer on the 2016 film Batman v Superman colon Dawn of Justice. Following negative critical reception to the film, Johns and John Berg were named to jointly run the DC Extended Universe and a newly established Warner Brothers division called DC Films. This was in May 2016. They would serve as producers on the 2017 film Justice League. In January 2018, after Justice League underperformed at the box office, John Berg was replaced by Walter Hamada as the head of DC Films, with Johns working closely with Hamada on future productions. Johns also co-wrote the story for the Aquaman film with James Wan and Will Beale. He also worked in television since uh, 2006, and he's one of the people behind the takeover of the CW network with uh, by the Greg Berlanti-produced shows Flash, Arrow, Legends of Tomorrow, and Supergirl, as well as the shows Titans, Doom Patrol, Swamp Thing, and who in the world knows what else, uh, available on the DC Universe app, or eventually will be. They're now or going to be. We don't know. (laughs) Now, in 2017, Jeff Johns and Gary Frank began the Watchmen DCU crossover series called Doomsday Clock. And that that wrapped up really good. Um, Oh, right. And in 2018, he and Richard Donner would contribute a story called The Car that would appear in Action Comics number 1000. Yeah, that was a big jam book, and that was their contribution to that issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, in June 2018, John stepped down from his executive role as DC Entertainment and entered into a writer and producer deal with Warner Brothers and DC Entertainment. He opened Mad Ghost Productions, a production company that works on film, television, and com- comic books based on DC Comics properties, and apparently heads up one of the DC Comics' many new imprints. Uh, details are hazy on this at the moment. I'm not sure what's happening there. Nobody uh, does. Something was The Zone, was that his thing? I forget what it was called. (laughs) I don't even remember. Uh, Though as of this recording, one of his ongoing titles, Shazam, looks to be on a sort of kind of hiatus, maybe. Uh, It's been unsolicited, the next couple of issues. And uh, at the very least, it's in Resource at Limbo at the time. And Doomsday Clock has its own problems. Uh, It's a 12-issue series that has now taken 
it's going to be over two years to come out, and it just yeah. put out its 11th issue. So, uh, yeah, we don't know. We're going to get back to that a little bit later on. Right now, we're going to go across the table and look at the artist, or one of the, the main artists for this uh, book I wanted to talk about, which was Gary Frank, born 1969 in South Wales, England. Before breaking into comic books in 1990, he published Rovers, colon, Portrait of a Football Team, which featured caricatures of a number of Bristol Rovers football club players from the 1989-90 season. That would be soccer to us in America, by the way. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're thinking of football, the uh, thing looks like an egg. No, it's not. It's the round one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he wrote that in conjunction with then-Rovers player Jeff Twentyman. That's a name, isn't it? I just wanted to say that the whole thing point of that was to say Jeff Twentyman. So there we go. <laughs> Uh, He began his professional career in 1991, illustrating covers and short stories for publications such as Doctor Who magazine and Toxic. This lets. Whoops, yep, sorry. Uh, This would lead to a stint at Marvel UK in 1992. He was the regular series artist on a a book called Motormouth and Kill Power, which. uh, is an interesting uh, little uh, thing there. <laughs> in uh, 1992, also in 1992, Frank was recruited by Marvel proper, the United States branch, uh, in order to illustrate covers for The Incredible Hulk, and he began with issue number 400. Uh, this was during the much-beloved run by writer Peter David. He also did uh, the interiors uh, as well. That's right. Shortly uh, thereafter, he was hired as a series' ongoing artist, uh, and uh, during this time at Marvel, uh, Frank contributed covers, interiors, and pinup illustrations for various series, such as X-Men Unlimited, Sabretooth Special, X-Men Classic. He was part of X-Men Prime, which we discussed uh, last year, uh, Doctor Strange, Sorcerer Supreme, among others. He also drew covers for Acclaim Valiant uh, Comics, Ninjack, and Harris Comics, Vampirella. In 1996, Frank and Cam Smith were hired as the art team on DC Comics' new Supergirl ongoing series, which reteamed Frank with writer Peter David. Frank's run as penciler ended with issue number 9, May 1997, cover date, although he continued to provide covers for the series until issue 21. Other assignments for DC included a Birds of Prey one-shot and the DC Marvel Amalgam Comics one-shot, Bullets and Bracelets, in 1997. Also in 97, Frank and uh, writer John Arcudi were hired as a new creative team on the Wildstorm title Gen 13, and they began with an epilogue story in issue 25. Their run on the series was praised for its dark, realistic style in both writing and art. The Arcudi-Frank-slash-Cam Smith tenure on the series would last two years, wrapping up with issue number 41, July 1999 cover date. It was during this run in 1998 that Wildstorm head Jim Lee would sell his studio and all of its properties to DC Comics. Therefore, issues 25 through 36 were published by Image, and the rest, 37 through 41, were published by DC Wildstorm. Frank continued to work for Marvel, DC, and Image Comics via the Top Cow Studio imprint, and as mentioned, he currently draws Doomsday Clock, whenever that comes out, written by Jeff Johns, but we will get back to that later. Yeah, well, we're going to talk about that uh, in relation to the book we're going to read, Rebirth. But, uh, you know, Rebirth is what we would call a crisis-level event, right? Or a crisis-level book uh, in terms of what a crisis means to DC. And we're going to discuss more of that. But essentially what it is is they're tooling with DC's concept of parallel universes or a multiverse. 
uh, and I wanted to talk a little bit about what that is. Uh, the idea that there are parallel universes is a long-standing one in science fiction and has its roots in mythology and the works of ancient scholars. Ancient Hindi texts such as Puranas suggest that an infinite number of universes uh, exist, each with their own gods. Now, in The Adventures of Bulukia, it's a story in the collected Middle Eastern folk tales, 1001 Nights, the protagonist, Bulukia, learns of alternative worlds or universes that are similar to, to theirs, but still distinct from his own. Plato re reflected deeply on parallel realities, resulting in Platonism, or Platonism, uh, which is his belief that the upper reality is perfect, while the lower, earthly reality is imperfect shadow of the heavenly, similar but with its own flaws. Now, heaven and hell, as well as the, North, the Norse afterlife Valhalla, can be considered alternate dimensions in that they're accessed by dying, but can't really be traveled to conventionally. Right, it's not like the Hades, which you cross the river you can, sticks. Yeah, <laughs> you, uh, you give the guy the token and you're good. Exactly, yeah, you go through the turnstile, everything is fine. Uh, <laughs> one of the first science fiction examples of parallel universes is Murray Leinster's Sidewise in Time, first published in the June 1934 issue of pulp magazine Astounding Stories, in which portions of alternative universes replace corresponding geographical regions in this universe. It's actually a matter of the latitude and longitude numbers are how you discover these alternate realities. It's a very, oh, wow. very difficult story, to, uh, but, it, <laughs> but it definitely falls in this thing. How about that? Now, uh, parallel universes are used in literature in order to subvert natural laws or to explore alternative possibilities, such as uh, Philip K. Dick's The Man in the High Castle, and that looks at a world where the Nazis won World War II. DC has its own line of alternative alternate person uh, possibility alternate personalities no possibilities <laughs> uh, they're called elseworlds sometimes uh, it's alternate personalities it can be it sure can be it's uh, 55 shades of batman it's all good <laughs> uh, and then uh, across street at marvel they've got their own line of comics that are you know what if dot 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 question mark uh, but truth be told dc was the first to employ a, a multiverse and here's how that happened. Uh, in the Golden Age, there was a comic called All-Star Comics, and that original concept for that was that it would be an anthology title containing the most popular series from other anthology titles, the biggest characters. Uh, published by both Amer all American publications and national comics, uh, so it would be all of those shared characters. All American would later sell to national periodicals, which is the predecessor to DC Comics, and that's why DC owns all of the characters now seen in all-star comics, I, I assume, and including those the weird, like, Western characters. Yeah. Or all those guys. Probably. Now, uh, all-star comics would debut with a cover date of summer 1940, and it featured superhero stories that included all-American comics' as Flash, Hawkman, Ultraman, as well as Nationals, Our Man, Spectre, and Sandman. The adventure script, uh, strip uh, Biff Bronson and the comedy adventure Red, White, and Blue would also premiere with this issue. In All-Star number three, Justice Society of America was introduced, and individual character stories were loosely connected by some framing pages at the front and back of the comic book. That that was really the only place those characters would interact, though, in the book. Otherwise, yeah. you know, they had their own little separate story going on. Uh, now, Dr. Fate from National's More Fun Comics and the Green Lantern and the Atom from All-American's flagship title, All-American Comics, 
join the team. While it would be a reach to call this continuity, it did establish a level of connectivity uh, that these characters and their adventures existed on a singular Earth that, at the very least, was not ours because we didn't see them. Yes. <laughs> this was not the world outside our window. Uh, exactly, yeah. Now, over time, Golden Age versions of characters like Jay Garrick's Flash and Alan Scott's Green Lantern would join the team. The anthology format would be dropped in 1947, replaced with full-issue stories featuring the heroes teaming up to fight crime. So they're not just meeting to tell stories of their solo adventures. They're actually having adventures together. Mm-hmm. Now, All-Star Comics increased its frequency from quarterly to a bi-monthly publication schedule, and the JSA lasted through March of 1951 with issue 57. This was a story titled The Mystery of the Vanishing Detectives. Then superhero comics uh, slumped in the early 1950s, and uh, All-Star Comics were renamed All-Star Western in 1951 with issue number 58. Mm -hmm. We can jump right into the Silver Age, which is a... You know, the next evolution here. Mm. Uh, That's the early 1950s. Only three superheroes, that'd be Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, were still published under their own titles. Uh, Gotta consider that Green Lantern was featured as a backup in Detective Comics, and Aquaman would appear as a backup in Adventure Comics, but that's just splitting hairs. It's the three big heroes. The Trinity have their own books. Right. Uh, in the mid-1950s, editor Julius Schwartz, writer Gardner Fox, and artist Carmine Infantino decided to resuscitate and redesign The Flash. Uh, Robert Kaniger wrote the new, the new Flash's first few stories, though, it should be said. Uh, Silver Age begins with the comic book showcase number four, October 1956 cover date, by Robert Kaniger and Carmine Infantino, though some claim that it was with the debut of Martian Manhunter and a backup in Detective Comics number 225, November 1955, but uh, that would be... Up to your discretion, quite frankly. Absolutely. Now, with the runaway success of Showcase Number 4, other Golden Age characters were rebooted with a Silver Age treatment. We get the Space Age Green Lantern, Hal Jordan. He would debut in Showcase Number 22, October 1959, cover date by John Broom and Gil Kane. The Hawkman changed from a reincarnated museum curator into an interplanetary police officer in The Brave and the Bold, number 34, February-March 1961, cover date by Gardner Fox and Joe Kubert. The Atom was reimagined as a shrinking scientist. This was showcase number 34, October 1961, cover date by Gardner Fox and Gil Kane. And the Justice Society of America would have a Silver Age reawakening as well as the Justice League of America debuting in the Brave and the Bold number 28, March 1960, cover date by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski. Mm-hmm. But then there was a story called Flash of Two Worlds, and this is, uh, <laughs> this is the, uh, this the big where the problems really began. <laughs> it's true. Uh, the Silver Age would meet the Golden Age in this story that took place in The Flash number 123, September 1961, cover dates by Gardner Fox and Carmine Infantino. Now, while performing stunts for some children, Barry Allen winds up vibrating himself out of Central City and into Keystone City, which is the home of the Golden Age Flash. You know, you might know him as Jay Garrick. He learns that Jay, a comic book character on his Earth, and, you know, his inspiration for his superhero name, is an actual living, breathing person on a different Earth. Earth 2, while Barry Allen is on Earth 1. The two take out some classic baddies and agree to meet again somewhere down the line, and thus... A multiverse is born. That's right. And now, hang on to your hats, folks. It gets crazier. Uh, Jay Garrick would return to guest star with his Earth-1 counter 
chapter part six issues later in the flash number 129 june 1962 cover date the next time he returned in flash number 137 june 1963 cover he brought some friends with him yeah and the flash 123 was so popular that dc had crossovers every summer between the two earths for the next many years yeah uh, justice league of america issues 21 through 22 august september 1963 by gardner fox and mike sikowski gave us crisis on earth one and crisis on earth two in its supervillains from both earths team up to fight their respective alternate arc enemies uh the jla and jsa team up to take them all out this is Possibly the first DC story to continue over consecutive issues, so not a done in one. Exactly, which is uh, you know a hallmark, to say the least. Uh, I think we're going to also mention here the the issues in which the multiverse expanded. Not every meeting between the uh, Earth yeah. One and Earth Two counterparts, but you can get that on a different uh, episode bunch that we'll mention in a minute. Certainly. Uh, now, uh, after this uh, first connection that we just mentioned, uh, the Fiddler reasons that if there's an Earth 2, there must be an Earth 3. And wouldn't you know it, in Justice League of America numbers 29 through 30, August and September 1964 cover dates by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski, our heroes meet their evil counterparts, the crime syndicate of America, in Crisis on Earth 3. They're from Earth 3. Uh, the second issue story is titled The Most Dangerous Earth of All. Mm-hmm. We jump to Justice League of America's issue 37 and 38, August, September 1965, by Fox and Sikowski. We got Earth Without a Justice League. In it, Earth-1 evil counterpart of Johnny Thunder uses Thunderbolt to go back in time and prevent the JLA from ever forming. And this creates another Earth. Earth <laughs> a, the letter A. Yep. In issue 38, everything's set back to normal with the help of the JSA and Thunderbolt. And in the end, only Thunderbolt is is able to remember that anything happened. Yeah, that's a strange little uh, hangover <laughs> there. In Justice League of America's number 73 and 74, August, September 1969 cover dates, in Starlight, Starbright, Death Star, I See Tonight, and Where Death Fears to Tread by Denny O'Neill and Dick Dillon, uh, uh, after Dinah Lance's husband, Larry Lance, sacrifices himself, the Black Canary realizes there's nothing left for her on Earth, too, and she leaves. I guess there's really nothing holding her there anymore now that you can just kind of go between Earths. Sure. Uh, she would eventually meet Earth One's Larry. Uh, however, he turned out to be a criminal, and they didn't get it get it together. No. Uh, Justice League of America issues 107 and 108, October, November 1973 cover dates. We get Crisis on Earth X and 13 Against the Earth. This is written by Len Wein with art by Dick Dillon. In this series here, the League and the Society head to Earth X to aid the Freedom Fighters in their war against Hitler. Now Earth X is a parallel world in which the Axis powers won World War II. Uh, this is that uh, Earth's first appearance as part of the DC multiverse, as well as the first canonical DC appearance of the acquired quality characters, comics characters, uh, that included Black Condor, Doll Man, Human Bomb, Phantom Lady, The Ray, and of course, Uncle Sam. Mm-hmm. In this, Plastic Man is revealed to have been killed, but don't worry, it's just the Earth 2 version. He doesn't That's... matter a whole heck of a lot. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, the Justice Society of America revival in 1976. The name All-Star Comics was resurrected for a series portraying the modern-day adventures of the JSA. This new series dismissed the numbering from All-Star Western, which followed, remember, All-Star Comics, uh, and continued the original numbering, premiering with All-Star Comics number 
number 58, January-February 1976 cover date by Jerry Conway and Rick Estrada. This ran for 17 issues until number 74, which had an October 1978 cover date. Starting with issue number 68, a hyphen was added to the title, and the words all hyphen star comics became a much smaller part of the cover, while the words Justice Society became much larger. In the 1970s, introduced new characters Power Girl and the Helena Wayne version of the Huntress. Helena is, of course, daughter of Earth 2's Bruce Wayne and Selina Kyle, better known as Batman and Catwoman. Yeah, so in All-Star Comics number 58, we get the subtitle Super Squad, and this was the name reserved for the team of younger characters whose core includes Power Girl, and this issue would mark her first appearance. Also, the Earth 2 Robin with his ridiculous costume, and the Star-Spangled Kid. Uh, This series would be canceled during the DC implosion, uh, and the JSA were folded into Adventure Comics, that's the anthology book that was running for a little while after that. Now, after 23-year-old Jerry Conway became an editor at DC Comics in 1975, longtime JSA fan Roy Thomas suggested to Conway that the JSA be given their own title again. Later, Conway offered Thomas a chance to ghostwrite an issue of the revived All-Star Comics, but he had to decline because Thomas was under an exclusive deal with Marvel Comics right around then. However, we bump up to 1981, where Thomas moved to DC. He was no longer with Marvel, and he was therefore able to work with these characters. The All-Star Squadron debuted in a special insert in Justice League of America number 193, August 1981 cover date. That was a, There were a lot of inserts in that very oh, that summer, period, I yeah. believe, right? <laughs> Uh, debuted in their own title the following month. Uh, that was All-Star Squadron Number 1, September 1981, cover date by Thomas Buckler and Ordway. The comic book series was published for 67 issues from September 1981 to March 1987 cover dates, plus three annuals. Roy Thomas and Jerry Ordway co-created the Infinity Inc. team in issue number 25. That was September 1983 cover dates. Yeah, the Infinity Inc. is a team mostly comprised of the children, godchildren, and heirs to the Justice Society of America members, uh, plus some heroes that were denied entry into the JSA for whatever reason. Uh, you could think of them as like the Earth 2 analog to the Teen Titans. You know, the Titans mm-hmm. are to the Justice League as Infinity Inc. is to the JSA. Right. Uh, they would get their own title, which was all written by Roy and Dan Thomas, and this would run for 53 issues between the cover dates of March 1984 and June 1988. So, by the 1980s, the the mid to late 1980s, continuity was perceived as a mess. Uh, Folks at DC felt the multiverse was foreboding to potential new readers. Conjecturally, at DC, uh, also felt some shame over their sillier Silver Age stories and wanted to do away with a lot of them. Uh, And, of course, the main reason a comics publisher enacted deep change, sales were bad. Mm Mm-hmm. Writer-editor Marv Wolfman says, While writing Green Lantern, I received a letter from a fan asking about a mix-up in DC continuity. In my reply, I said, One day we, meaning the DC editorial we, will probably straighten up uh, what is in the DC universe and what is outside. At this point in its history, DC Comics had Earth-1, Earth-2, Earth-3, Earth-B, etc., There were superheroes on each Earth, and though old-time readers had no problem understanding DC continuity, it proved off-putting to new readers who suddenly discovered there was not one, but three Supermans, Wonder Womans, Batmans, etc. 
Preach it, Marv. Uh, he continues, <laughs> uh, when I was growing up in the 1960s, the superhero team comic to read was the Justice League of America, a book featuring seven or eight of DC superheroes. Occasionally, the JLA would meet the Justice Society of America, their 1940s counterparts from Earth 2, which was in another dimension, and would have maybe 15 or 16 heroes in a special two-part JLA-JSA story. But being the greedy fan I was, I always wanted to see a single story featuring all of the DC superheroes from the past, present, and future. Now, the continuity fix that Marv is uh, alluding to here would come in the form of a maxi-series that was originally planned to run 10 issues. It was going to be called History of the DC Universe. It was then expanded to 12 issues and given a new title, DC Universe colon Crisis on Infinite Earths. The series would do away with the multiverse and collapse everything and everyone into Earth One into one Earth's continuity. Which was Earth One. Yes. Whatever that's <laughs> worth. Uh, and we went over that whole series in episodes number 50 through 54 in our archives. The whole mm -hmm. Christ and Infinite Earths and every character introduced and murdered is gone over in that uh, series. Yeah, if you have a spare uh, 12 hours, you're you're good to, to listen go to that. Go check it out. You know, <laughs> either, either read the comics or listen to it. It takes about the same amount of time. Probably. Um, Barry Allen sacrificed himself to save the reality that remained in that series, but it also did away with many beloved aspects of the DC Universe. So, of course, Crisis on Infinite Earth presented its own problems immediately after its yes. conclusion. Essentially, writers didn't want to stop writing about their favorite characters from around the multiverse. That was really, I think, at the core of what the issues were. DC attempted to fix things, at least the chronological problems, with 1994's Zero Hour, colon, A Crisis in Time, written and penciled by Dan Jurgens. And we discussed that in episode 20 of Weird Comics History, which you could find in our archives. Now, the problem, verbalized by the character Wave Rider in Zero Hour Crisis in Time Number 3, he says the following. Years ago, there was a universal crisis, an event so destructive that it never totally settled, sending chronal shockwaves throughout time, causing disruptions we're only now becoming aware of. So, essentially, Zero Hour sought to relaunch all the DC characters in the same time period, and it would also have the byproduct of giving Hal Jordan more of an ending. Right. Uh, and Hal Jordan did stay dormant for quite a while, for the most part, until Jeff Johns brought him back as Green Lantern, uh, as mentioned already in 2004. This sort of necessitated a re-expansion of the multiverse, which happened in Jeff Johns and Phil Jimenez's Infinite Crisis, which was 12 issues, December 2005 to June 2006 cover dates. Now, it turns out Superboy Prime, that he was an outlier now that Superman didn't manifest his powers until he approached adulthood. So all those Superboy stories kind of got shunted off into this other, this other new character. Mm -hmm. uh, he had been living in a pocket universe with Alexander Luther from Earth-3 and a Lois Lane from Earth-2, I believe, right? I believe, yeah, uh, Lois and, and Cal L with just the L, not E-L. Oh, okay, so that's right. Yeah. The Earth-2 Superman as well was hanging out over there, so he was with Lois. Mm -hmm. uh, Superboy Prime uh, won't stay placated, though, and he punches the dimensional barrier surrounding their pocket universe and shatters it which essentially, bottom line, reestablished the multiverse. <laughs> you know, really boiling it down. Yes. But that's essentially what it was. <laughs> uh, and this introduced a huge, whole new set of inconsistencies. Yeah, the, the DC editorial really didn't know what way was up at this point, and they no. didn't want anything in concrete. So writers were just... 
doing their best. <laughs> it was kind of fun. They were writing like any character, any time, you know. But yeah. really, there's no continuity happening. It's true. Now, uh, still, the DC universe would stay more or less intact until Flashpoint, that ran May through August 2011, written by Jeff Johns and drawn by Andy Kubert uh, for the main five issues. Uh, there were also a bunch of uh, miniseries taking a look at the world of Flashpoint, including one called World of Flashpoint. And yeah. uh, this filled in. Uh, this really built the world of Flashpoint. Uh, you know, I guess it's says it does what it says on the tin. Uh, now the story here is that Barry Allen wittingly, unwittingly, somehow went back in time to stop his mother from being killed, and in so doing, severely changed current DC continuity. Yeah, just had like the Amazons were fighting with the Atlanteans. Thomas Wayne became Batman instead of his son, Bruce. Uh, Lois Lane was a freedom fighter or something like that. I never that one I never really got a hang of. But the, ambush bug was a Canterbury cricket. I know it's that's right. What was that all about? Yeah, that was a lot of very Gorilla Grodd ran Africa. It was very strange. Superman was like a like a young scrawny, alien boy, yeah. scrawny boy. So uh, it was it was a weird thing. So Barry had to run back in time and allow his mother to die in order to reset DC continuity to what we came to know as the new 52. Uh, before he did that, though, he got a letter from Thomas Wayne telling Bruce that he was a good kid. So that was nice. Indeed. Now, this established that uh, the, the publishing initiative slash reboot, the new 52. So now we have, you know, 52 worlds in the multiverse, and all the heroes were uh, younger, hipper, cooler, and uh, meaner. Yeah. Uh, every remaining title started over as a new number one, which uh, still kind of meant something at the time. <laughs> it's uh, enough to get mainstream <laughs> news to get on it, yeah. Sure. Uh, this left some fan-favorite properties in the dust for some reason. So characters like Wally West. Tim Drake, Oracle, uh, Donna Troy, just uh, oh, yeah. shunted. Initially, they a lot were out, and then they kind of got weeded in, which only made things again much more complicated. Absolutely. Uh, you know, but and Tim Drake was part of the New Fifty Two, but he was handled so poorly that he really might as well have been excised completely. It was no, really wishful just, thinking. And, and to this day, <laughs> they really do not know what's going on with that character. Uh, so. Uh, this went on for a few years, and someday we will tackle the wild happenings on the page and within the industry during the New 52. But for the purposes of this episode, it got so convoluted that it necessitated a soft reboot, at least, which would come in the form of the comic book we're going to read right after this break. Hey guys, I'm Jeff Johns, and I'm gonna talk to you a little bit about what Rebirth means. So I'm sure when it came up, you were like everybody else, curious, maybe a little cynical, unsure of what this meant. And that's why I'm here to talk to you about what it means. You know, when we started Green Lantern Rebirth, Hal Jordan was gone, the Green Lantern Corps was gone, Kilowog was gone, Sinestro was gone, Guy Gardner was some crazy alien guy. And it really didn't feel like Green Lantern to me. It didn't feel like the epic you know, nature of what Green Lantern could be. 
And so by bringing Hal Jordan back, we didn't just bring him back, we brought the core back, we brought Sinestro back, Kilowog back, but it wasn't just about bringing things back, it was about really looking at what Green Lantern is all about. And that was willpower and courage over fear. That was epic storytelling across a canvas of intergalactic adventures and, and threats. And it was also about embracing the present too. It was like Kyle Rayner, we brought him right into the center of that storyline and we kept him there. And that was really important to me is that it wasn't about destroying anything. If anything, it was about taking all the elements from the past that were so great that were discarded and bringing them into the present. And then taking all that and moving to the future. And it led to Sinestro Corps and then ultimately Blackest Night. The second rebirth was the Flash rebirth. You had Wally and Jay and all the speedsters, they were great. The speed force was cool, the rogues were cool. And in this rebirth, we looked inward. We looked more at Barry Allen himself, giving him a backstory that he never had. So we told a story of, you know, his mother's killed and his father's arrested for it, and Barry Allen stops. Just emotionally, he stops, he's standing still, and he gets into forensic science and he wants to exonerate his father and he works in a crime lab and one day when he's working on his mother's case late at night he's hit by a bolt of lightning. He gains super speed and he's saving people and he's finding joy in life. He's connecting with people again emotionally. He allows himself to move forward. After the Flash rebirth it all led to Flashpoint and you know from showcase to crisis to Flashpoint the Flash has always been on the forefront of change at the DC Universe. There are some secrets we'll learn about the New 52 in the third Rebirth, right? It's gonna start with DC Universe Rebirth number one, this special that kicks off the entire Rebirth event. And it's not just an event, but an ongoing mission for us. And we've been working for months and months and months with all the creative teams in editorial and Dan and Jim. And I'm sitting there with every single team and really zeroing in on Aquaman or Birds of Prey or Justice Society of America and saying like, let's look at this and find out what we love about it. What did we love about it? What do we love about it? And really take all of that and build a better book, build a better universe. The whole point of Rebirth for all of us is to get back to the essence of the characters. I'll end this with saying the DC Universe Rebirth special, the very first couple lines in it sum up um, what this is to me. This is a picture of the world and the narrator, mysterious narrator says, I love this world, but there's something missing. Hey everybody, welcome back. Uh, we're now finally going to jump into the actual comic that we're going to talk about in this episode today. And it is DC Universe Rebirth number one. This issue opens with some unattributed narration over some detailed drawings of the inner workings of a watch. And this would be one of those older mechanical watches full of gears and springs and the like. Uh, I assume watches today have like an alien chip and a nuclear isotope inside or something like that, At right? At the very least, yeah. Yeah, so I'll make a mark that way. Uh, anyway, this scene alludes to a similar monologue by Dr. Manhattan in Watchmen number 9, May 1987, cover date. And you're supposed to think the caption narration belongs to him. But a careful color check would reveal that the captions are red and yellow and not blue and darker blue. Yeah, that would be Dr. Manhattan's look right there. Uh, so the panels pull out to show the planet Earth covered in storm clouds that are all emitting lightning. Yeah, our narrator says, as bizarre as it sounds, I used to find myself lost outside of realities like this. Sometimes it was because I was pushing myself too hard. Sometimes it was just because someone else was. Still, I always found my way home because I had a lightning rod to ground me. But as hard as I've tried, I haven't been able to find her. Then we pull back to Gotham City, uh, where a severe thunderstorm is taking place. 
so I've been searching for someone else to make contact with. And then we zoom in on Wayne Manor, and uh, you probably know where the camera's going at this point. Straight down to the Batcave, where Batman <laughs> is sitting in front of the Bat computer, and he's looking at a news report on Superman. Reporter says, No new sightings of Superman since he was declared missing after confrontation with an unknown metahuman yesterday. And this refers to the end of, a, of the previous issue when Superman and Dr. Manhattan clashed. Uh, still scrutinizing the uh, bad computer, Batman observes the three Jokers. Uh, this was revealed, you know, Batman sat in the Mobius chair during a very, very long Dark Side War Justice League story. That's and, right. And uh, he found out who the Joker was, but he said, uh, that can't be. And the reason he said it can't be is because there were actually three of them. And they all appear to be from different eras of continuity. Yeah, the way they're being depicted here, but we still are not sure what the heck that story we... was alluding to. <laughs> Even today. <laughs> so now the air around Batman crackles with electricity, and a blast of lightning courses through the Batman and throws him for a loop. A disembodied voice yells, Bruce! Wally West, dressed as Kid Flash, appears. Bruce! I need your help! Bruce says, Barry! Wally attempts to talk to Batman, but before he can reveal his name, he's pulled back from where he came from by a bolt of lightning. No, I'm not Barry, but, but you know me, Bruce. I, I'm younger than you would remember. We all are. My name is what? And Wally is able to mention that the letter he got from Thomas Wayne in the Flashpoint continuity before he vanishes in a shower of sparks. As he leaves, something flies out from the warp tube or whatever it is that he leaves <laughs> through and embeds itself into the wall of the Batcave with a chunk. That letter that Thomas Wayne wrote to Bruce is also kind of floating around. And with that, Wally is sucked back into the Speed Force, and he remembers his entire story along the way. Over the years, as my powers grew, there were times I'd run so fast I'd break the time barrier. And like now, I'd get lost and imprisoned within the Speed Force. Every time I thought I was lost forever, Linda helped me come home. Our love transcended dimensions. We were connected no matter where we were. Like I said, she was my lightning rod. Uh, technically, while you didn't say that, you had just said you had some kind of lightning rod and that it was a woman, but okay, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we will see Linda Park again in a little while, but for now, Wally explains that she was sort of excluded from the DC Universe after Flashpoint, and nobody knows this but him. Mm -hmm. Now, from the Speed Force, Wally observes an older man running from the good life home for the elderly. He's uh, being chased by a couple of orderlies. It seems he's being forced to stay there by court order, uh, possibly imposed by her, his daughter. He locks himself in the, faculty, uh, the facility's kitchen, and then the air around him begins to crackle with electricity. Wally appears, and he tells the man to summon the genie and find the Justice Society. Fans of the DCU will know this is Johnny Thunder of the JSA, who can summon a powerful being named Thunderbolt by intoning the magic incantation, Say You. Mm -hmm. The orderlies bust into the kitchen, and this break in Johnny's uh, breaking, and this causes Wally West to disappear, this break in Johnny's concentration. Uh, as orderlies drag Johnny away, he shouts, Say You, which initially you think he forgot the word, but then he mm -hmm. obviously knows it, but it has no effect. 
Yeah, it just makes him look even crazier. It does. <laughs> now, Wally continues to tumble through the Speed Force and observes a couple of cops who have a blonde woman in an interrogation room. One of the officers is Captain Maggie Sawyer. The other is uh, well, another officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, she goes in to interrogate the prisoner. Uh, she's been detained for stealing a sandwich. After which she explained that where she comes from, food is free. Yeah, the woman says, I've come here to speak to Superman. The interrogator goes, Superman, huh? Yes, I'm a friend of his. You don't say. I believe I just did. I hate to break the bad news, miss, but it's been playing over every network for the last 24 hours. Superman's gone. Missing in action. Well, I can wait until he gets back. You think this is a joke? The Justice League says he could be dead. Oh, he may very well may be. And no, I don't think this is a joke. Then why are you smiling? The suspect says she knows Superman is okay, and she knows everything will be all right. I have seen the future. On the other side of the two-way glass, Captain Sawyer is looking at this uh, interrogation, and she's holding the only item recovered from the woman, and this is a familiar flight ring with a Legion of Superheroes logo on it. Woo! Uh, Wally is still careening through the speed force, observing life outside. At a university, someone is yelling at Professor Ray Palmer's assistant, Ryan Choi, for not keeping better tabs on him. He's missed five classes this semester, after all. And she threatens to deport Ryan back to Hong Kong. That's uh, extreme. Uh, (laughs) Moments later, Ryan Choi is at Professor Palmer's office door, talking through it, admitting that he knows not to bother Raymond during his, quote, special projects. He thinks the situation still deserves his attention. Then he notices some mail lingering under Ray's door, and Ryan decides to use his key and enter the office anyway. Inside, a television is playing a message from Dr. Palmer, and he's wearing his Atom costume. He says that some weeks ago he detected an anomaly in the time stream. Thinking that it was Kronos, he shrunk down and hopped in. He found it was something bigger than Kronos, which is, he's a big deal, especially when it comes to time stream. (laughs) I guess it could be anybody. Uh, Discovered the microverse where he's trapped currently. Ray asked Ryan to cancel all of his classes, tell his ex-wife Jean that the alimony will be late, and shrink down to retrieve him from his world. I gotta wonder if infinite if uh, identity crisis is still a thing because I don't know how Jean could get alimony after all that. But she, would, uh, she would be in Arkham Asylum, wouldn't she? Right. Yeah. With half an Eclipso face <laughs> uh, on the screen, Ray says, "I know you don't play sports and you hate the outdoors and you're afraid of heights. Uh, you have asthma and allergies. Honestly, you're a bit of a mess." Uh, so you want this guy to do a favor for you? Is that is that right. why you're being so nice to him? Choose poorly there, pal. <laughs> uh, no. Ray mentions that just when he reaches uh, the microverse, uh, someone will seek Ryan out and approach him. No matter what this person says, he is not to... Transmission ends abruptly. Ain't that always the way? Right when you want to say something. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ryan freaks out, but he's ready to go. And Wally continues his peeping time routine from the Speed Force. Yeah, he sees Ted Cord and Jaime Reyes hanging out around Cord Industries. Ted is putting the finishing touches on the new Beetle ship. Uh, Jaime is there, too, not as excited about the new uh, Bat Cave in the Sky, as he calls it. He just uh, wants the scarab off his back, and so he can return to a normal life. Speaking of which, he's got to cut out because he is late for school. 
When Jaime leaves, Dr. Fate shows up and tells Ted Kord that he is dealing with things outside of his knowledge. The world of magic. And uh, Ted actually seems very pleased by this, so maybe it'll work <laughs> out for him. Uh, and Wally West keeps stalking the DCU. If only Dr. Tate, Dr. Fate were there to uh, warn Ted that his uh, Rebirth series was going to be crap. That's, that could have been something else we could have used. Could have, could have. Elsewhere, uh, Damian Wayne observes a cake for his 13th birthday, and he smiles broadly after blowing out the candles because he is now a teenager. Hmm, that sounds titanic to me. Uh, huh. <laughs> uh, Jessica Cruz is hearing from Hal Jordan that she has to team up with Simon Bez, a lantern that, quote, carries a gun. Hal explains that he has to go deal with Sinestro, and Jessica doesn't even know who that is. Poor Sinestro, never getting his due. <laughs> uh, <laughs> teenager Jackson Hyde, uh, we'll know him later as Aqualad, he sulks in his bedroom. His mother tells him that he isn't natural, uh, not for how uh, he swam at his lake, and because, uh, you know, he is this meta-powered character, but she's not talking about that. She's talking about him uh, being gay. That's right. <laughs> and he says, it's who I am. Even if I don't know why, I won't run away from it anymore. Speaking of running, elsewhere, Pandora is running. Hey, remember her? Boy! Oh, <laughs> yeah, <was> the <laughs> sensational character find of 2011. Oh, uh, <laughs> she reaches a wall and says aloud that she may have made the world crueler by releasing the seven deadly sins. But within that, there was hope. Then she's eviscerated in a flash of blue light, very reminiscent of Dr. Manhattan's power, leaving nothing behind but wisps of smoke. I gotta say, this is the only time I've ever, I ever saw that they dealt with that character, Pandora, and right, like how she, how she affected <laughs> things, and what, like, what was the point? I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. Uh, anyway. We're always told, yeah, we'll eventually tell you. <laughs> yeah, they never got around to it. This is the only part that she released the seven deadly sins, and that's why the new Fifty Two was kind of a crueler place. But anyway. Uh, Wally tumbles on and sees that Wonder Woman has a secret twin brother named Jason already out in the world and possessing of great power. He, he, uh, he learns this because uh, it's being told by Grail uh, to baby Darkseid, even though Grail is Darkseid's daughter. Uh, kind of a funny thing happened in that Darkseid war and he became yeah. a baby. Uh, and she appears in the scene to be delivering baby Darkseid. It's not totally clear. Uh, possibly from her own womb, but we know that's not true. It's a very strange scene, so, uh, yeah. Re rebirth, indeed. Really? Good gosh. And then, then after birth. Uh, <laughs> uh, Wally blows by an assembling of DC heroes in an open field. We've got a whole lot of them here. we got Firestorm, Martian Manhunter, Raven. Yeah, Starfire, Steel, Green Arrow, Black Canary. Captain Atom, Cyborg, Shazam, Supergirl, and Wonder Woman. And several law enforcement types, and uh, also looks like Steve Trevor might be hanging around, too. He tends to do that. Yeah. Uh, now, there appears to have been a crash here. While he can tell someone has died, and somehow he knows it was Superman. Then he reminisces about Green Arrow and Black Canary's relationship, which didn't exist for the new 52. Yeah, he says, they barely even know each other anymore. But when their eyes meet, they feel a spark that neither of them can explain. A void deep inside them. Something buried deep in their hearts. All right. Uh, speaking of Superman, he does die in Superman Volume 3, number 52, July 2016 cover date, which actually was after this, but yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, this is what it's alluding to. Uh, then we cut over to Clark Kent 
from another Earth where he's married to Lois Lane and has a son named John at that time in a series called Lois and Clark. It really is. It's If you don't know, it's really complicated. But uh, <laughs> he's been seen running the Seagull Motel and uh, bemoans the fact that he can't get his favorite pancakes on this Earth. He's also visited by... Mr. Oz! Ooh, that did not age well, that one, huh? <laughs> Yikes. Oh, sir. Uh, Mr. Oz, he does what he always did back then. He says some cryptic <laughs> stuff. Uh, we're not really inclined to repeat it, considering what ultimately would come of this story thread. Yeah, it turns out what he said was a bunch of nonsense that really That's had no it. bearing on anything anyway, so... Well. I don't uh, think well, they knew exactly what he was going to be yet. They didn't know. But they, what he ended up being, I mean, I guess we could say it turns out to be his dad. It's Kal-El's dad, but yeah, it's, it's Jor-El, uh, yeah. very weirdly kind of tumbling down a flight of stairs, that one. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, while he keeps on falling through the Speed Force, and he, he's watching still from the Force, and he sees Aquaman and Mara having a date on some tropical beach. Surprise! Fresh fish is on the menu. And after the meal, Aquaman proposes to Mera. How about that? And then <laughs> Wally just keeps on a falling. He passes by the spot where Superman died. Uh, now we got reporters gathered there, and among those reporters is Linda Park. That's right. Currently, she's a reporter for some news website, and she's not getting a lot of information from any officials at this site. Yeah, Wally says, if anyone's going to remember me, Linda will. And once she does, it'll bring me back. That sounds like junky talk to me, buddy. It does. <laughs> Listening to the end of the, of a phone conversation, we find out that Linda is in dire straits financially, and also she's taking care of her ailing mother. So Wally decides to appear to her while she's dealing with all of this at the moment. <laughs> it's me, Linda. It's Wally. And I can come home. Sadly, Linda does not recognize him, and Wally zaps away back into the speed force, and he continues to tumble on. Though now he's resolved to get back to Linda Park somehow. He passes through Gotham, where the bat signal is observed in the night sky, and we can see a man and a woman seeing this signal from a rooftop. But it ain't time for them to act just yet. Mm. Blowing past Louisiana, Wally catches part of a conversation between Swamp Thing and Constantine. Swamp Thing says he helped him with, quote, the capes. Now Constantine owes him a favor. By this point, Wally's falling even faster. He blows by Captain Boomerang, who name-checks Amanda Waller of Task Force X, who you might know better as the Suicide Squad. He cruises past Cyborg, who's doing what he always does, standing before a computer screen. <laughs> that's about the size of that's it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a heck of a promotion from the Titans to the JLA. Just, uh, you stand there. You, yep. you plug in, you're good. Uh, Wally slips by Dick Grayson, who's putting on his Nightwing outfit. Or maybe taking it off, I can't really he's, say. He's, he's in some stage of undress. Yeah. Uh, then Wally West tumbles past the other Wally West. This is the one introduced during the New 52. He says, in Central City, the other Wally West. Now, this was, uh, in both our opinions, one of the biggest missteps of the New 52, the, re- the introduction of a new Wally West who was tangentially related to the original Wally West. So dumb. So yes. dumb. Uh, Wally says... My father, Rudy West, who was a manhunter, had a sister and a brother, Aunt Iris and Uncle Daniel. I was as close to Iris as I was far from Daniel. My Uncle Daniel had a child, a cousin I never met. We were both named after our great-grandfather, Wallace West. So he's his own grandpa? Is that what I'm getting from that? Sure, why not? 
And guess what? <laughs> this Wally, this other Wally, is a speedster too, which only further complicate things. Oh, but we'll yeah. we'll talk about this more as we wrap up the issue. <laughs> uh, Wally reaches, watches new 52 Wally save a woman from a speeding car, and the new 52 Wally screams awesome in triumph. Wally continues plummeting through the speed force uh, just to rub some salt in his wounds. Uh, Wally passes by Barry Allen, the current Flash, and he's handing out uh, pizzas to some kids he's rescued from a fire. Uh, they're, they're pretty lucky. They're pretty lucky for everyone all around. Uh, Wally's happy for Barry uh, so that the Flash shoes are being filled appropriately. Uh, he can do it. His, he can do this one last caper, and then Wally says he'll die happily. And that is specifically to manifest himself before Barry. You don't know who I am, and you won't remember. So this is hello and goodbye. Wally tells Barry to go see Batman, and uh, history got messed up somehow, and Batman's got that letter from Thomas Wayne to prove it. Then Wally thanks Barry for his amazing life and dissipates into nothingness. But, before he can completely disappear, Barry's hand shoots out and grabs Wally's arm. Barry yoinks Wally into the real- into this reality. Barry appears to remember who Wally is and says he's sorry. And the two of them embrace. And this is a huge payoff for yeah. many longtime DC Comics fans. This is still a tough page for me to read. It really, it, it's still, I mean, even for me, as you know, not a huge yeah. Wally fan necessarily, although not against him, but it's very touching and it's a, it's a great time. payoff for the way it's rolled out. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the two of them speak. Barry says he remembers everything now, but Wally says there was so much more still forgotten. He's Got to be talking about the dingbats, right? I hope so. I hope someone <laughs> brings them back. Uh, this wasn't all Barry's fault, says Wally. It was someone else. And we cut over to the Batcave, where Batman is checking out some of his uh, most famous trophies. You know, the giant Joker card, the dinosaur, etc. Also, the letter from Thomas Wayne that he keeps under glass. Then, Batman notices a glint of light coming from the rock wall. Excavating it a little, he pulls out a familiar yellow badge. It's the comedian's pin from the Watchmen verse. It's got that one splat of blood on it, too, the telltale. But you know it's his, you know what yes. I mean? <laughs> now, the epilogue takes us to the surface of Mars, where a Swiss watch is being precisely disassembled by some unseen hands. A close-up detail of the watch face looks suspiciously Watchmen-esque. And that is that. Very, very mysterious, and uh, I remember it really got people humming this issue. Oh, yeah, you know what I mean? big time. Uh, DC fans and just comics fans alike were just really interested where this was going to be going. Sure. Uh, part of that was because of the kind of symbolic nature Jeff Johns had, and I think still has, to DC Comics. Sure. Uh, due to his having written a lot of things that DC fans love, Booster Gold, Green Lantern, a very competent Teen Titans uh, in his time, the Volume 3, uh, and for success in writing world-building titles like Infinite Crisis and the Green Lantern mega-event Blackest Night, his name is frequently invoked to mean that things were going to be set, quote-unquote, right Within the DC universe, wouldn't you say? Like, you know, Jeff oh, Johns is absolutely. Jeff Johns is here now, folks. He'll take care of everything. He's a, he's a fixer. That's and, right. Um, he That's made, right. Uh, he made Hawkman uh, readable again. He, he really, his Aquaman name carries a lot also, of weight. Uh, oh yeah, uh, definitely for does. sure. 
even in other media, when his name is attached to the DCU film or cartoon, people get more excited about the ramifications if uh, his if he's involved. Yes. Uh, cons- uh, consequently, in more recent years, DC has used John's name as kind of a shorthand for things in uh, the DC serving its fans rather than trends or marketing data, which is uh, largely a perception of you know DC doing business and not necessarily fact. That's all right. We don't really know what they're using to uh, guide their guide their ship. Uh, anyway, we'll leave that there. Uh, certainly, in the case of this rebirth comic, Jeff Johns' inclusion meant that the pre fifty two continuity would be reinstated, and quality control would once again reign. Even as the entire line was rebooted with all new number one issues, two for each title. If you remember, in fact, uh, rebirth colon title and title colon rebirth. Each one got one of those a piece. Yeah. So that was that was a big coup by DC. I think uh, the people in the, across the street were a little jealous. I think of that maneuver. <laughs> Damn it! They figured out how to do two number ones in a month. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, now this was all except for Action Comics and Detective Comics, which happened to revert to their pre-New Fifty Two numbering with the New Fifty Two numbering added on, which really makes it a nightmare to yeah. you know put in a long box. But uh, they were shipped twice a month, as a lot of them were, because they were nearing their thousandth issue. And they, I guess they wanted to expedite that process. They wanted, uh, I think certain people wanted to make sure they were still there in charge <laughs> while it was going to happen. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, furthermore, it is said that Jeff Johns was working with creators, crafting stories tied into the issue we just read, and implying that this would you know, bring everything together and finally right the ship. And things did feel hopeful for a while, uh, all the way through to his Batman the Flash crossover event in April, titled of the following year, titled The Button, issues 21 and 22 for each of their respective volumes, which led directly from the Rebirth issue we read, and also led to Jeff John's next event, Doomsday Clock, which is Gary Frank also on art for that one. Uh, the button was written, however, by Tom King and Josh Williamson, drawn by Jason Fabic and Howard Porter, respectively. Yes. So, question here. I mean, we are over three years removed from Rebirth, from this yeah. very issue. Has Rebirth righted the ship? Uh, has it delivered on its intention to restore hopefulness and joy to the DC Universe? Mm. It's you know reading reading this now <laughs> it's it's very interesting because when we first read this obviously we didn't know what was in the future and it really was and what all wasn't what in the future what might be yeah exactly <laughs> you know it was it was all about what might be the Wally West was the biggest bombshell but there's a lot of stuff seated in there the uh, JSA. Saturn JSA Saturn mm-hmm. Girl meaning that Legion of Superheroes was going to come back. Uh, there was a lot of stuff in there to show that that things that were beloved to DC fans would return. Three years later, it hasn't happened for a lot of those cases, and the, the Wally West thing turned out to be a bunch of hooey, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, big bust. Uh, it just didn't really hasn't really panned out to be anything useful. Uh, but I still feel like we're we're in it, you know what I mean? Like it's it's <laughs> there's still opportunities for things to happen. Since then also Brian Michael Bendis got hired on. He's obviously doing a lot of the world building at DC and things have yeah. kind of taken a different direction. So I would have to say at this point though, no. Is that okay <laughs> to say that? It didn't deliver on those those things, you know? No, it it sure didn't. It's uh 
You know, I'm reading reading this issue the first time, and uh, you know, your hands are shaking when you're done with it because you want to get into these into these new books that were coming yeah. out, and uh, just to see where these where these veins were going to spread. And uh, for the most part, I mean, we talked about the button a minute ago that came out a year later, and that yeah. was like the first thing that even really touched on this. So we had like a year of. Uh, after like somewhat bombastic launches, we had just a year of meandering. Yeah. And uh, I think in like the first 12 issues of Titans where Wally was shunted off to, I think he died like three or four times or was sucked back into the speed force three or four I times. That. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. we just got through this and you're putting him back in the speed force every other issue. Can we, can we tell a story? Yeah. Just have and, him out. Just have him out there existing with the Titans. Sure. Uh, you know, Batman, the first arc out of Rebirth, did follow the one or two panel drop in the Gotham in Rebirth. Guy and Gotham the, girl or whatever. Yeah, Gotham guy. <laughs> and so that did follow that, but then they went away. They almost, they never came back, really. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they, it went off this whole other crazy story that Tom King has that has nothing to do with Rebirth at all. And it's, uh, you know, the Legion thing, the Saturn girl thing, nothing came of that. I don't even know if she was still... In incarcerated when you know this all ended, it uh, yeah, because it I think <laughs> like they picked up on a little bit of it in Doomsday Clock, but but now I mean, the Legion are back now with the Millennium event, That's and right. I don't know if there's any connection. Uh, the JSA, uh, Scott Snyder's bringing them back in Justice League, so. Who knows if that's going to tie into this? Uh, I don't saying, even know if it's They're saying it doesn't. They're saying it won't. <laughs> but, but it's to the point now. Like I, I just don't know what to think. You know what I mean? Because they, they say a lot of things, and it doesn't, it doesn't end up being that way. So maybe it will tie in directly to Doomsday Clock. Which really, this also, I, I do perceive this as being a setup for Doomsday Clock, also, which we didn't see at the time since that was not yet. A thing, you know what I mean? Uh, Change the ending to the button to announce Doomsday Clock because I think the button was supposed to end a certain way, but it didn't because they wanted to announce Doomsday Clock. I remember they even pushed that issue of Flash off a week. That's right. uh, To so they could put the uh, so they could put all the promotional stuff for Doomsday Clock, which didn't come out, didn't even start until like six months after that. So it's and now we hear that they've changed the end of the Doomsday Clock. Because it's not going to lead into the things they had planned, which were the JSA, the Legion, mm-hmm. maybe other things. You know what I mean? Uh, this is in, in the interim. We've had metal. We've had oh, yes. heroes in crisis. We've had the new age of heroes. That's right. We've had all these imprints, and Lord only knows which ones are in continuity and which ones aren't. I mean. You know, we, we, we joke around about how Brightest uh, brightest Day kind of withered on the vine and how, in some ways, the New 52 was a mercy killing, yeah. you know, because it was just so meandering and so pointless at the end. It feels like we're right back in that spot. It where... definitely does feel like DC has lost its way. And I think, like, when we talk about the fact that, like, uh, the button had its ending change. Doomsday Clock had its ending change. I could swear Metal also had its ending change. Heroes yeah, because it was crisis. spoiled beforehand, right? And then they went back and they they. Yeah. I can't remember what was spoiled about it, but they do uh, Heroes in Crisis. I'm I could guarantee, and I'm not the only one that says that had some heavy editorial editorial revisions just, after issue yeah. three. I mean, it just it just becomes incomprehensible almost after that. Uh, yep. This is the this is the issue, and this is something we have talked about 
many times in this show is DC especially, although you can put this a little bit on, you know, Marvel also, is not sticking the landing, not sticking to their guns. You know what I mean? If you make a legacy character, keep going with that legacy character, you know? It's, it's It's the turning back that creates the issues that necessitates... These, you know, re- world reboots, you know what I yep. mean? Like, this is the issue. This is the problem. And uh, that was definitely, that's the case for everything, I'd say, from New 52 on. Um, you know, we're going to talk about New 52, like I said, someday. Yeah. Uh, we have plans for it, but it's, it's you know, certain things have to happen first. But <laughs> that was an incredibly, you know, ambitious initiative, to say the least. Sure, you know, very brave, where was, yeah. Where it was like, we are starting over, and, you know, if you don't like it, leave. And, you know, this is for new readers. And, you know, for a little while, it worked. But then what happened was they put the brakes on again. You know what I mean? They had to have it both ways. They had to have, all you know, everything all together. And uh, it muddled things up. So it's kind of a rare editorializing on our part, but this <laughs> is something. This is something I think that means something to a lot of us, to both does, of us, and to sure. a lot of our listeners. Uh, it's just like you know, there's so much we love about the DC universe, and it just never really gets highlighted in a, in a respectful way. Mm-hmm. Uh, or rarely, rarely does it get highlighted that way. You know, uh, and this isn't to demean the people necessarily working for DC. I know a lot of people are, you know, pouring themselves into these books. Uh, you know, the art level and the storytelling level is as high as it ever was in comics, you know, in general. Sure. But, you know, there's, I think there's a lot of editorializing behind the scenes. There's a lot of double, you know, rethinking things and, uh, it shows. That's all we got to say. And just a yeah, and just a lack of uh, perhaps a lack of communication between creative teams, be between editorial and creative. I mean, yeah. stories are being written and then rewritten. So I, that, that that doesn't. I, I don't think that uh, writing a full story and then writing it again makes it better. I think you know. I think that's that that just make gives you more opportunities to second guess and to. And and in a way, play it safe or go the other direction and throw everything out. It's just weird. There was this. This is about a year, year and a half ago. So it's not a brand new example. But I remember there was something going on in Green Lantern. Well, there was something going on in Suicide Squad where they were going to get Hector Hammond to help them. That's right. And and so they went and they like got him out of his like super secret. Argus containment unit or whatever the heck it was, and it was supposed to be like a huge shocker, like, oh my god, it's Hector Hammond, where has he been, whatever. Meanwhile, at the same time, Hector Hammond was just one of many villains being fought that Hal Jordan was fighting. Like, it was was just (laughs) nothing at all. There was, you know what I mean? Like, obviously, no discussion that, you know, between departments, like, we're bringing back Hector Hammond, this is a big deal, or don't use him, you know, right now, for example. Uh, but that's not happening, and that that really seems to be a major problem over there. Uh, editorial issues. That's all I gotta say. You know, I'm not. Mm-hmm. I, I can't put it any one person. We don't know what happens really over there, but uh, it's definitely there's a lot of miscommunication and backtracking, and yeah, it shows in the in the in the comics. Um, but hey. Tomorrow's a new day. We'll see what happens. And I think there's uh, there's just one thing is for certain here that uh, there's probably another multiversal reboot right around the corner. 
Oh yeah, I think that, that <laughs> I think that we are due already for some kind of a, a rebooting. So uh, we would love to hear from you guys, though. See what you think. Maybe you feel differently about current DC comics. Maybe you have other insights, or you want to talk about uh, different crises, or even this rebirth. And if you do, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail dot com. Uh, we're on Instagram at Cosmic T Mill and on Twitter at Cosmic T Mill. And I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. You can go read Chris's personal writings. He updates every single day at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. Still getting through Action Comics Weekly, which you were oh. getting through last time we recorded an episode. Oh, yeah. This thing is just never-ending. It's uh, it's draining. <laughs> you're coming, you're coming up on your last couple of months, though, I think, ten, right? Ten it's, weeks. There ten you weeks. go. So so we're almost done. You guys got to check that out. If you've never read Action Comics Weekly before, it's like the next best thing to reading it. And if you have read it, it's going to remind you of everything about that series, good and bad. It's really well done. ChrisInfiniteEarth.com. I, I usually don't promote my writing so much, but from some of these stories I've read, it might actually be better than reading the stories. You're probably doing better. Exactly. Oh, Definitely quicker. There's some, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's some meandering stuff in there. But uh, if while you're checking out websites, you can also check out chrisandreggie.com, which has finally been updated. Uh, <laughs> <You're right. laughs> resting on our laurels there, but all the archives are updated, so you can find any episode of the program, even the ones we talked about today, uh, in chronological order. Uh, be easy peasy and click a link and they're there and that's, that's it right. chrisandreggie.com yeah that's that's definitely the place if you want to listen to back episodes to go find them but uh, I think that's all we got from this week Chris got anything else for him nah it'll do it until next time folks I want you to keep it on the treadmill voyeuristically see ya the love is back and rappers know I'm taxing them I'm known for kicking the dopest rap to the maximum I'm on a quiet tip and suckers claim I'm falling I'm back up here and beefing now your words I am recalling the standard I'm above it the music they did love it but joy is on record because I'm here to overdub it the thing I couldn't make it the thought was so deceiving super lovers back who gives a shit what you believe in I'm back, 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 I'm Sucker keep hands off of her. If-